morning, church. Good morning to those of us online, to all of our campuses. Welcome to you. We're glad you're with us. You know, a couple of decades of pastoral ministry, one of the most significant days that I can remember was a Father's Day just like this. A few years back, uh, on Father's Day, we invited some dads to get in the baptismal waters with their son or daughter and with the pastor, uh, baptise their child. And it's just etched in my memory, just such a powerful day. And so today, we wanna celebrate uh, a dad uh, baptising his daughter, uh, Blake Stancil and his daughter Dawson with Pastor Benji. So let's celebrate this together now. We always like to make sure children know what they're doing, right? And um, so, is it okay if I read just a few answers are so good? Yeah. So it said, um, what does it mean to make Jesus leader of your life? Dawson said, accepting Jesus into your heart, he will help you every step of the way. He died on the cross for me. Yeah. Let the church say amen. Yeah. I, this, this, this one right here just really moved me, Jess. It said, who has God placed in your life to teach you about what it means to follow Jesus? She said, mommy and daddy. Yeah. That's, that's what moms and dads are supposed to do. Why do you want to be baptized? I want my, oh, this is so good, from, from a kid. I want my old life to go, and I want to have a new life. I want to be on God's team. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. I'm a, let me hand this to you, sweetie, for her. <laughs> hey, we're proud of you. Your dad's proud of you. Your mom's proud of you. All these people uh, just are here to celebrate this great moment in your life. And so I'm going to ask you, even though you already answered them, um, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Look up there. You realize he died on a cross for you and he loves you that much. Uh-huh. Do you promise to serve him now and always? Yes. Awesome. Blake, we're just going to take her back together. And you can say it with me. We're going to say, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm going to take her down at Son. So Dawson, it is our joy and privilege, this church family gathering around you to baptize you. You can do your hand, hand over your nose if you'd like. We baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Come on, church. Isn't that cool? So we want to uh, offer that to our dads. In two weeks' time, uh, we're having a huge July 4th party, Independence Day. I became a citizen two months ago, my first Independence Day, right? We're gonna celebrate. And what better Father's Day gift than to take the opportunity today to have a conversation with your son or daughter and then in two weeks' time be part of a huge baptism celebration on July 4th and be in the water. We're gonna do this at all of our campuses. You can be in the water with the campus pastor and, and baptise your son or daughter. Uh, but maybe this morning uh, you hear this and you've received Christ as your saviour but you've never gone public with your faith. Uh, we wanna invite you to be part of that celebration and be baptised on July 4th. And so you'll see a QR code on the screen right now. You can scan that or in the seat pockets in front of you. Alternatively, you can go to the Next Step booth in the lobby and get registered and be part of that. Uh, but don't miss our party on July 4th. There's gonna be burgers and hot dogs and stuff to do for the kids. It's just gonna be a fantastic celebration and I think it'll be really cool every time we get to celebrate people going public with their faith and being baptised. Am I right? Yeah. 
Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Hey, we want to take a moment right now and honour our New Hope dads, all of our dads with every title from grandfather to stepfather to brother, uncle, to foster dads and spiritual dads, to those of you today who have lost your father and today's just that little bit more difficult as a day like today intensifies emotion. For some of you, we want to acknowledge that your memories of your dad are not tender ones. And so today tends to be a tougher day. So as your faith community, we wanna say we see you, we acknowledge you, and we're glad that you're here with your spiritual family today. Pastor Benji uh, wants to send his greetings and love, and especially to the dads, and wishing them uh, happy Father's Day. He came by my office this week and he said, Reese, uh, New Hope has some of the best dads going around. And so can we take a moment and honour all of our New Hope dads on this Father's Day? Well, today we're gonna continue in our series Mindset. We've been in over the last few weeks, if you've been around the place. As you came in today, you would have received uh, this card. If you wanna grab a pen in the seat pocket in front of you and fill that out as we go. If you're online, you'll see the link there. You can click uh, to follow that. But Pastor Benji and I were talking about where we're up to in the series and Father's Day, and we talked about the power or presence of criticism in our lives. And so today, we're gonna unpack in a message called the criticism mindset. We all know what it is to have uh, opposition in our lives, to receive criticism. And I know for dads on Father's Day, uh, that's a part of the story for you. But it's not just dads, it's everyone knows what it is and some of you are experiencing criticism or opposition in the workplace, uh, perhaps with a colleague or a boss, or in a school setting, or in your family itself with uh, your wife, with your children, uh, maybe with your parents, where you feel like there is opposition coming at you from every angle. So today, we're gonna look at a biblical response to criticism in our lives. And we're gonna jump into the story of Nehemiah, the part where he is rallying the people to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And so with that, I'm gonna ask if you would please stand to your feet to honour the reading of God's Word today. As I said, we're in Nehemiah, we're in chapter four, uh, reading this whole story starting in verse one. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was by his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. 
So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near came out, told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of the men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah where the building, uh, who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore a sword at his side as he worked. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, a little bit of background to this story that we've just read. So here we find that the kingdom of Judah has been captured by the Babylonians. The Babylonians are defeated by the Persians and Nehemiah is living in exile. This is the same period of the story of Esther, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and around the bend we go. All of this took place under Persian rule. Now, Nehemiah, for those of you who don't know, was a cupbearer to the Persian king, which essentially is a secret service agent to the president, but it would be the, the highest ranking of security for the king. Now what is unusual in this aspect of the story is Nehemiah is not of Persian descent, he's a Jew. So to hold a position like this, he would have been a very competent, impressive guy. He had earned the trust of a foreign king. A king would literally put his life in the hands of his cupbearer. Now, Nehemiah is having a conversation with his brother back in chapter one, verse three, and his brother says to him, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah first learns that his people are in deep trouble. The city is in disarray and they're vulnerable. The city gates are down, meaning they can be attacked by enemy nations at will. Now, further context for us to understand in ancient times is that the, the city, the, the prosperity of the city was synonymous with the God of that nation. So the God of Israel was being ridiculed because the city was in ruins. 
They were being mocked and dishonored and this became Nehemiah's holy discontent. And this is what we've just read in Nehemiah chapter four. He's so burdened by this information that his brother has shared with him that the city is in disarray, that he risks his own life to change it. Now, in Ezra 4, there was a group of people who first rallied together to attempt to build this wall. But when the Persian king heard of this, King Artaxerxes, he put a stop to it immediately. Now, what's interesting is Nehemiah is the cupbearer for that same king. So now he is coming to the king and he's calling into question the king's decision to stop the rebuilding of the wall in a previous time. Now to further understand their relationship, what was custom in that day is the, the, the connection and trust between the cupbearer and the king could not be questioned whatsoever. In fact, if it was ever to be questioned, the custom was that the king would put the cupbearer to death. So as Nehemiah approaches the king to even ask of this, he's risking his life. But he doesn't just simply ask for permission for the wall to be rebuilt, but he asks for time off work, for letters for rite of passage in surrounding providences. He asks for a military escort and an army to accompany him, a house upon arrival, and a royal credit card to fund the entire project. And in chapter two, verse eight, we read, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. What a powerful statement. The gracious hand of my God was on me. That God would do the improbable. We see this throughout the whole arc of Scripture, this, this statement repeated over and over, that the gracious hand of God was on the people. In the early church, the city of Antioch was known to be a people who had the gracious hand of the Lord upon them, recorded in the book of Acts. If you ever wonder, uh, what can I pray for my church right now? That's a great place to start. If you simply said, God, would you have your gracious hand on New Hope Church, that we might see God do improbable things in our midst. So if we have the gracious hand of God on us, we would expect to be exempt from opposition or exempt from criticism, right? but that's not reality, is it? Times when you've experienced the favour of God in your life and at the same time experienced opposition, experienced criticism and being ridiculed. Let me start in chapter one, which we've already been in. Many translations of the Bible have this passage titled, The Rise of Opposition. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Nehemiah is receiving this just after the king granted all of his requests, evidence that the gracious hand of God was on him. And then this. The next verse, Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side said, what 
are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their walls of stone. Now, often we can expect opposition to come from the outside, but it's a whole nother sting of criticism when it comes from someone within. Now, I've told you before, I have a brother who's a pastor in Tennessee, and we we're talking about this passage, and he brought out something in this passage that frustrated me as a younger brother, because I wish I'd seen it myself, but he said this, <laughs> notice that Sanballat was Persian, but Tobiah is of Jewish descent. Right at the start of this story, after Nehemiah has the gracious hand of God on him, he gets opposition from Sanballat, the Persian. Yeah, we, get, we expect that sometimes in our lives, right? But he also gets it from someone of his own people. Tobias says that ridiculing statement that is so flimsy that the wall would fall down even if a fox ran along it. But if we wanna avoid criticism in our lives, we need to follow the wisdom of author Albert Hubbard who wrote, if you don't wanna be criticised, do nothing, say nothing and be nothing and you will never be criticised, right? Go build your house under a rock. <laughs> Bury your head in the sand, you won't be criticised. So let's go deeper into this text. Let's look at some insights of the enemy's playbook as we look at the criticism mindset this morning. And as we do that, as we've read this story, it's interesting that this is a text that's thousands of years old, but yet to us today, the specificity, the relevance to this point of receiving criticism and opposition in our lives is astonishingly accurate in 2021. Trapped in the text here, we see the enemy does to try and dismantle our lives. Three areas of criticism in our minds that cause self-doubt. And the first is criticizing the people. First, the people are criticized themselves. What are these feeble Jews doing, Sanballat says. And in the Hebrew, the original, uh, that feeble is more accurately translated weathered. What are these old, weathered, withered people doing? Criticize the people. This is who is around you. This is self-doubt in you being the right person. Immediately, the enemy is wanting to sow that doubt in your mind. Who's around you? Your wife, your children, you don't deserve them. You're not good enough. People in your business that you have hired around you. Maybe you're an entrepreneur and just the doubt that you are not enough. I don't have what it takes. First attack of criticism is the people. The second is the work. Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? The work itself is criticised. The project, the vision, the purpose, mocked. What is sown in the mind here is doubt and negativity. We've experienced this. When you wonder if you're even heading in the right direction, whether this change of job is right or moving cities or taking on more responsibility, 
I don't even know if this is the right direction, the right focus, a noble cause, that this is the right strategy or plan or even right approach. The enemy is criticizing and planting seeds of doubt and negativity. And the third thing is the resources. Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? You don't have the right resources. You're fooling yourself. You're not gonna have enough money or enough provisions or the right people or the right stuff to accomplish the goal. Sowing self-doubt in a negative mindset from every angle over and over again. Now this in the playbook of the enemy is a really effective strategy. To criticize you and the people around you, to, to criticize the work itself and the provisions, the resources. You see, if the, if the enemy can dissuade and discourage you, and you yourself end up stopping the work. You see, the enemy can discourage your mindset in these three areas of self-doubt, you'll actually self-sabotage your own work. You'll give up yourself. You'll stop it. The devil doesn't need to stop it. You'll stop it yourself. As Pastor Drew said in week three of this series, with our self-taught, we can give up more land than the devil will ever take. Look at this contrast in mindset, verse six. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Verse six, with all of their heart. Four short verses later, verse 10, we cannot rebuild the wall. From belief and faith to despair and doubt, and now they've all but given up. Because the words of criticism hold disproportionate power in our lives. If you're on the chat, write disproportionate. The words of criticism hold disproportionate power in our lives. This means that criticism stays longer in our minds. It, it replays longer, we find it hard to focus on anything else because those words of criticism have such disproportionate power. A few years ago, Rolling Stone magazine did an article on Larry David, the, the co-creator of Seinfeld. He was at a Yankees baseball game and the camera panned to him and he became on the jumbotron. And as people started seeing, they stood to their feet to honor him and a huge standing ovation with 50,000 people at Yankee Stadium for Larry David. His friends tell the reporter that as they were leaving the stadium, uh, one person at the ballpark yelled out, Larry David, you suck! <laughs> well, later that night, the friends go on to tell the story that he was able to focus on nothing else. In fact, he could not recall that 50,000 people stood to their feet cheering for him, but he kept saying over and over again about the guy who criticised him. Do you relate? Words of criticism have disproportionate power in our lives, 
And often the enemy has it on replay over and over again in our minds. You see, the devil is in the criticism. His plans of destruction and darkness in our lives is often through the vehicle of opposition and criticism. And there are four areas the enemy attacks in our lives. First, he attacks our strength. Next, our vision. Next, our security. And then our confidence. Pastor Benji taught us about the power of confidence last week. First, a loss of strength. The enemy can attack you in your will to continue to follow the purposes and the plans that God has for you. Attack your strength, your power to keep on keeping on. A loss of vision, you're not sure that God called you to this work. You're not, you're not sure where you're meant to be. A loss of place, a vision is lost. The loss of security. We've seen this over throughout this pandemic, loss of security. Am I safe? Do I feel safe anymore? And then a loss of confidence. I feel completely inadequate. I'm at a place where my confidence is totally shot and the enemy attacks in these areas to have about his purpose. Verse 11, also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. 10 times over. Hey, 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 when, wherever we turn, they will attack us. Wherever they turn, this is the intensity of such defeat and discouragement. 10 times over, they're repeating. This is a lost cause. There's no way we'll build this wall. Have you ever felt like that? Surrounded, it's coming in on every side. Wherever you turn, you can't take a break. It feels like there's a new person to bring criticism your way. You, you, you feel like opposition is just closing in on you. And the next person you see is gonna tell you 10 times over why you can't accomplish what God has called you to. Discouraged, defeated people. So what is Nehemiah's response to all of this criticism? This opposition and attacks, a self-doubt in the enemy's playbook. And how do we, as people of God, have a biblical response to criticism? Well, we see Nehemiah push back. We see Nehemiah say, enough is enough. And he displays here in the text three ways that we can change your mindset. These are the steps that Nehemiah takes. The first is to go to God with the criticism. Go to God. Verse four, Nehemiah prays. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. He doesn't hold back here. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults 
the face of the builders. They have ridiculed the work of God. Do not blot out their sin from your sight. There's something so relatable about Nehemiah right here. His humanity comes in the text for us. It's so relatable, it's so real, it's so raw. Other section in the Bible, in the Psalms, called the impregatory Psalms. These are the Psalms that are just raw and honest, and often they make us feel uncomfortable with the statements that we read. God, where are you? Why have you turned your back on us? Take our enemies and crush them in front of us. There's such raw honesty. And this is what Nehemiah shares for us to be following his example, to go to God. See, God loves you and knows you intimately. He knows the circumstance and situation you're walking through. And you can just be raw and honest and give your emotions, your fears, your frustrations, your betrayals. Give them to God. Go to God. If you don't go to God, you give in to criticism. Go to God with it versus going to social media versus going to family members or friends and just allowing that rubbish to spill out of you onto them. There's something about being in the presence of God that changes our mindset. But to be there, we have to be honest and raw and real as Nehemiah gives us the example to do. So often in those moments, we feel like our prayers need to be theologically correct neatly tied on a bow that, that maybe God might be offended if we say, why are you letting this happen to me? This was not what I planned. God, why am I being crushed when others are not? How come he gets the promotion? How come she gets the promotion? Why does this happen to me? See in the text, friends, we're invited to give all our emotion to God and to go to God with criticism. The next, I love this, it's to remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Verse 14. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Remember the Lord. In the midst of opposition and criticism, remember the Lord. Now what's happening here? What's happening here in the text is, is Nehemiah is having a, a stirring, motivating speech moment. This is Nehemiah getting on a horse wearing a Scottish kilt and painting his face half blue. It's him looking out to the people and say, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Fight for your families, for your wife, for your sons and daughters and for your homes. We are a people who remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You might look around and see a city that's walls are not yet complete or city gates that have not been rebuilt. You might look around and see a discouraged, defeated people. But I see a people who are called by God 
with an appointment and an anointing to rebuild the city, to bring honour back to the God of Israel. Now, New Hope people, as you look around this morning, what do you see? As we look around the church landscape, do we see a people who are discouraged, limping out of a pandemic? Because I see a people whose strength doesn't come from their own, but comes from the Lord of hosts, whose vision is not of this reality, but the reality to come. I see a people whose security is in the solid rock on which I stand that cannot be moved and cannot be shaken. I look out and I see a people who have resurrection confidence that the tomb is empty and that death has been defeated. I see a people whose confidence is every time there's a yes and an amen, it's a fulfilment of the promise in Jesus Christ. I look out and I see a people, New Hope Church, who remember the Lord, who is great and awesome and worthy to be praised. What do you see this morning? Because just as Nehemiah rallied the people to say, this is not your reality. The enemy wants to come and attack your strength, your vision, your security and your confidence. And Nehemiah calls out the people to say, their strength is not our own, it's from on high. Our vision is not our own, but He's called us to rebuild this city. Our security is in the Lord of hosts and our confidence is in Him. And this is what we have to do, church. We have to call out the enemy's playbook. It's, it's garbage. It's saying that it's relying on our strength and our vision and our security and our confidence. That's not true. Rise up the Nehemiahs amongst us and push back the enemy's playbook. And the third thing we see that Nehemiah does is he calls the people to keep the faith. I love this. Check this out in verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot. You see church, we're aware of the enemy's playbook. When they knew that we we're aware of it, when the devil knows that you are aware of his playbook, you've already started to claim the victory in Jesus. Okay, let's get back in the text. When they were aware, the plot, and that God had frustrated it. I love that. They became aware and God frustrated it. Then what did the people do? How did the people keep the faith? Check this out, what did they do? We all return to the wall, each to our own work. We gather together on Sundays as the people of God. We encourage one another. We edify our spirits in Jesus Christ. And then we return to our work. What's our work? That we've all been called to a context to bring heaven to earth, to live it out in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our families, in our neighbourhoods. We return to our work. From that day on, Half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. 
Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Here in the text, we see an interesting pairing of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. This actually shows up all throughout the Scriptures. Sometimes it can be difficult to reconcile. If if the gracious hand of God was on them, the favour of God was on them, God's vision to rebuild the wall, why would they have to carry weapons? In fact, you could have someone say, by merely carrying weapons is a statement that you lack faith that God has called us to do it. The coming together, reconciling of the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility. Verse nine, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. It's both. We went back to work and we worked with one hand and we held a weapon in the other and stood guard. There is a sovereignty of God and a human responsibility. This is what we're called to as ambassadors of the Kingdom of God here strategically planted on earth. We have a human responsibility and an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God, acknowledgement of the gracious hand of God being upon us. This is the people of God taking up the calling of your purpose and your plan to represent the kingdom of God in people who lack and don't know the hope of Jesus Christ. So what is God calling you to do in this season? In the midst of your personal opposition and criticism, what's God calling you to do? to have a deep resolve in God's sovereign power and a receptivity to your human responsibility in your calling and to respond to it accordingly, to not let the discouragement and the defeat of the enemy's playbook overcome you, but rather let the power of the living God overcome it so that you stand victorious. So don't succumb to criticism in your life. Don't allow the enemy to rob you, but do as Nehemiah did and push back. Refuse to receive and believe the lies of the enemy. Push back and allow the power of God to come in and change your mindset. Yes? Yes. Would you stand to your feet? Let's go to God in prayer. Almighty God, who is the source of power, we come to You and we ask, Lord, would You deposit, would You open the windows of heaven right now and just rain down, God, the the truth that, Father, our strength is in You, that our vision is from Your hand, that our security is in the rock, the solid rock on which I stand that our confidence is resurrection confidence. So as a pastor, I pray God for the people right now, for all of their different circumstances, challenges and trials where they feel opposition closing in on them from every side. God, for those who are listening to my voice who feel like 
criticism has just been constant in their life these last days. Lord, I pray for your mercy and grace to pick them up today, that they would sense the victory that's theirs in Jesus, that they can claim the truth of the Gospel, that we have victory in the empty tomb, that death has been defeated. God, we see in the, in the Scriptures, uh, there's, a, there's a foreshadowing by Nehemiah of Jesus to come, that Nehemiah would leave the palace and risk his life. But the fulfilment was Jesus would leave his heavenly palace and come to earth and give up his life. God, may we remember that You are the great source and that criticism doesn't stick, that opposition is answerable to the Lord of hosts. Father, as we leave this place, may we walk in the victory that is ours in Jesus. And we pray this in His mighty Name. And all of God's people said, Amen, amen and Amen.